Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 295 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a wonderful conversation with our regular contributor, resident historian, Surf William. You're going to really enjoy his vitriol, his passion, his humor, talking about the American experience, for certain. We also have an EW essay titled Brother Brian, and an excerpt from Howard Zinn's masterpiece, A People's History of the United States, and a poem called Overstuffed. And, of course, as is always the case, we will imbue all of this with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's get to it. Episode 295 of Troubadours and Tours.
Brother Brian. I remember a time when I needed to be at an outpost of good humans and found a neighborhood bar in the city. Many artists and activists caroused there, and they still do. The three owners tended the place and welcomed genuinely all who came through. The day after G.W. Bush won his second term, one of the owners decided to close the place with about a dozen of lost souls inside, and we drank on the house all night long, lamented and played tune after tune on the jukebox, baby. Another time, the same man, when I asked to settle up my tab on a Saturday, after putting in a full shift of talking, listening, drinking, and seeking some solace, said to me, I think tonight we're going to cash in your frequent flyer miles. He knew I, at that point, had been dealing with the sense of failure and self-pity that comes with getting divorced. Soon after, he invited my children and me to go horse-riding at his girlfriend's family farm because he felt and intellectualized the truth that we could use it. We navigated the Susquehanna River on a pontoon boat that day and witnessed the strength, elegance, and spirit of a bald ego as it soared across a blue late summer sky, cumulus clouds floating by, and the beauty of those moments in kindness did not beckon a notion in me to think that this gentleman Brian, through his action, painted a poetic people portrait. Why? Because he, in his essence, knows together we must, with love and soulfulness, live and forever try to do a bit more than just get by. We must be alive.
William? Sir William? Hello? Sir William, is that you? Oh, technology, EW, technology. Yes, it's amazing, is it not? It's, it's conspiring against us. Well, most of the world is, because we're so important and dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I'm putting in my earbuds. Good. For an, op for an optimal, optimal connection with you. That's great. I'm happy to hear it. Hold Ladies. on. Let's see if it works. Ladies okay, so tell me, you, tell me you can hear me and tell me I'm loud and clear. I can hear you and you're loud and clear, Sir William. Oh, that's awesome. Our resident historian, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, Sir William. We're talking. Forget, well, this is a message to your audience. Forget about history. There's nothing to learn. Don't study history. His story. Nothing, nothing to learn there. It's sexist as well. It's sexist. It's, it's elitist. Yeah, but without it, you wouldn't have a day job. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to spread my propaganda to the to the to the malleable minds of our youths. Youths, that's right. Our youths. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I have a bit of a cold, so uh, you know, bear with me. My throat is killing me. But uh, we are yeah, okay. we're talking on this Thanksgiving morning. You know, a lot of people will be listening to this after Thanksgiving. Most everybody, but. I thought mm -hmm. it apropos that we talk on Thanksgiving. Usually every year I think I have you on around Thanksgiving because I want to hear your perspective on the state of affairs in our country and the larger world <sighs> around this time uh, of year. I'm already worn out. You're already wearing me out. Well, you know, I, I want to share with you over the last several weeks in anticipation of this conversation, you have been sharing uh -huh. with me ideas that you wanted to focus on. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. I, I compiled all of them, and I just want to read them. It's like, honestly, it's like a poem. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, with the, even with the typos that occur from uh, talk to text. Go ahead. Let me, let me, yeah, let me read them, please. Here's what we're going to talk about today, ladies and gentlemen, and all those in between, and outside of that uh, set of parameters. The, should I comment, or should I just let you read? You let me read, read let me thing? read. Go, go ahead, go ahead. Number one, the death throes and convulsions of the old putrid white patriarchy. Number two, the Republicans continue to sully and debase venerable American institutions. Three, contrition versus vitriol. Al Franken versus Brett Kavanaugh and Trump. Number four, the spirit of the slave-owning tax cheats, quote, patriot founders, lives on in the radical right and that thing in the White House. <laughs> Number five. Who's, who said this stuff? Sir William, you did. <laughs> the, Number five. The right as traitors to America, traitors to American ideals, string them up, no judge, no jury. <laughs> Number six. Okay. Republican. And I want to clarify, as long as I have an opportunity to clarify this stuff. Yeah, okay, of course. On. That's what we're going to do. Number good, six, good. Republican policy is to suppress the vote, introducing Brit franchise voters, making them inherently yep. illegitimate. Yep. yep. Disenfranchised, that should have been. But yeah, okay. Uh-huh. And finally, number seven, those people represent the ugly side of our nation. Remember my thesis. If you vote Republican, you are at least one of three things. And you could be all three, mean, dumb, and or rich. I'm still waiting for someone to prove me wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir William here today. So explain uh, yourself. You know what? You, you, <laughs> you can't do that to me. 
<laughs> I could I could start rambling on. Um, those were thoughts that I sent to you over the course of several weeks, I think, as they just popped into my head as possible topics of conversation, because they're all so incredibly obvious that it's shocking to me that more people don't discuss it as such. You know, for example, um, I often said that leading up uh, through the 2016 election cycle, everybody was condemning the financial economic system that we call capitalism. Everybody was condemning it. Bernie Sanders was condemning it. Uh, Donald Trump was condemning it. And, and what was shocking to me, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, nobody comes out and says, capitalism is the problem. We need to find a better system. The system does not work. They would all talk around it, but they wouldn't talk, they wouldn't talk, they wouldn't address it directly. Um, so not to get too far off on a tangent, but, you know, Donald Trump said, uh, we need to bring jobs back to America because the Chinese, they're stealing our jobs. No, they're not. Capitalism goes where labor is cheap. Capitalism goes where it can exploit the most resources and labor for the highest profit. And that is not America anymore. That is Southeast Asian nations, Latin American, African nations. So capitalism simply does what capitalism does, which is exploit all resources to maximize profit. But nobody would come out and say that. We would talk about socialized medicine, single payer health care, bringing manufacturing jobs back to America. But nobody ever, ever said the problem here is capitalism. That's the problem. Um, so, you know, I, I, I find it fascinating how people dance around these subjects without just addressing them directly and saying, this is the problem. Let's figure out what a solution is, but let's identify the problem first. So you can go back to any of those topics that I texted you over the course of several weeks. And I mean, if you want to name one, go ahead and name one and we'll talk about it. I don't know which one you would prefer to talk about first, but you can bring up any of those topics. Well, I, I think I don't have the I don't have the list in front of me. So go ahead, tell me which one. I, I think a lot of these texts were sent in in uh, frustration. You know, I, I look at you. As, yes, I think I think you're someone who is a, a patriot and a, who does love the United States of America and what it can be and what it is even to a great extent at present. But mm -hmm. you see the flaws and you see the manipulation and you see the. Uh, also the, the, I don't know if the, the how our, our fellow, a lot of our fellow citizens are just not connected or they've given up hope or they're not aware, uh, in your view, maybe. And, and, and you get frustrated, especially leading, a lot of this was leading up to the midterm elections, I believe too. So I see a lot of frustration, uh, mm -hmm. and I hear a lot of frustration in these. Now you talk about the death throes and convulsions of the old putrid white patriarchy. Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, demographically, we, we see that the population of America is changing. Um, so demographically, we see that that middle aged white males are are the population is declining. And demographically, we see that people of color, younger people, women, those populations are growing. Um, I don't know if we've reached the point yet where white people are no longer a majority. But if we haven't reached that point yet, we're getting there. And demographers show that we're going to, if we're not there already, you know, it's in the next few years, less than 
of the voting of the of the electorate. The, the, um, yeah. Or I should say the population. I don't know if it's the electorate, if it's the electorate of the population, but certainly the population. So the trend, the trend is away from white people and more specifically white middle aged white men because because they're dying. The trend is away. Population trends are away from that going toward people of color, women, immigrants and so forth. So, you know what? Even if you if you heard recently the Republican strategists and party leaders in California, they talked about the death of the Republican Party in California after this recent election. Um, one of the main reasons is because, number one, Republicans are dying and their population is getting smaller. And number two, their message since the age of Trump is more and more tailored to those frightened, angry, xenophobic, nationalistic white people, people who people, lots of people who vote for Trump. And the reality is, those numbers are getting smaller. It's going to become increasingly more difficult for them to win elections on the state level and on the national level. And what you're seeing instead of, and this is interesting, I heard a Republican strategist yesterday say, we've got to change our messaging. Now think about that for a minute. We have to change our messaging. You know, we, we our messaging, the verbiage that we use is too harsh. It's too exclusionary. It's too... It's too um, it's too isolationist. It, it doesn't it doesn't bring enough people into the Republican fold. And I thought to myself, it's not your messaging; it's your policies. Like your messaging stinks too, but your messaging is a reflection of what you advocate. And what you advocate is what you advocate is a, a, a patriarchal system that is anti-woman, that is anti-immigrant, that is anti-people of color, that is anti-worker, first and foremost. And I thought to myself, as long as the Republicans keep with that policy and the messaging that's tied to it, they're going to continue to lose votes because the population is changing and going away from those people who would vote for them. So they, I do see the Republicans as being in the Republican Party as it now stands is in a death. They are in their death throes now because their population's getting smaller. You can't win elections. If you look at the demographics, you can't win elections with the number of voters that they have that will vote for them. Um, so instead of changing, instead of saying, we've got to really examine our policies and we have to determine if these are the best policies moving forward, maybe we need to modify them. No, no, no. Either they talk about changing the messaging, right? Just change the advertisement, don't change the product. Or they double down on the nastiness, like Donald Trump. They get even meaner. They get even more isolationist. They get even more aggressive and vitriolic in the hopes that that will what? What's the, what's the great term? Rally the base. That's going to rally the base. Well, the base is shrinking. So I really do think they're in their death throes. And instead of changing and doing what I feel is patriotic, you know, enacting policy that is in the best interests of the population, instead of doing that, what do they do? They double down on the nastiness and they try to and the bigots and the xenophobes, just as Nixon did 45 years ago with the Southern strategy. You know, let's start to um, let's start to put out coded messages to people, letting them know that we're racist too. We can't say we hate we hate black people. We can't use the N word, of course, but we can we can message enough so that they understand that we're on their side. Now, and, oh, and we're with William. them when it comes to bigotry and xenophobia and hate. If you could, uh, there were a couple things that cut out when you were talking about um, right right around when you were discussing Nixon and 
uh, how, how the Republican Party is. It wasn't an accident. It, <laughs> no, it wasn't. But, was there, were, there, were there 18 minutes of silence? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you were cutting out when you were talking about. No, it's, uh, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, Republicans are, their, their, their base is shrinking. And instead of modifying their message to reflect the changing values of this country and the changing electorate, what they've decided to do was double down on their messages of hate and bigotry and racism and xenophobia. So what, they're do, what they did in effect was they thought, we're not changing anything. As a matter of fact, we're going to increase these messages that have won us elections in the past. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis Nixon's Southern strategy, which was, let's win over these traditionally Southern Democrats by changing our messaging to one of racism and xenophobia and hate and intolerance for people of color. Well, you know, and that's how the Republicans flipped the South from Democrat to Republican. Let's go to Mississippi, right? Right now, you, you, oh, let's, let's not. That's that Senate uh, race in Mississippi, the, Democra mm -hmm. the Democratic mm -hmm. candidate, Espy, right? And yes. uh, the other, the Republican candidate, I don't even remember her name. I think I've mm -hmm. blocked it out. She's talking about, you know, stringing people up, going to public right. hangings and, su and such. And, mm -hmm. and uh, obviously, that's exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Now, that, that will still win you elections in places like Mississippi. But my goodness, you had a nail-biter in Alabama bet between a classic Republican guy, Kemp, and a African, an African-American woman in Alabama. You had a nail-biter in Texas between a white liberal guy, uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke, uh, and, and, and Ted Cruz, who, who embodies all that I find just vile and disgusting about the Republican Party. So, you, you, the, again, let me say it again. This, this, this uh, senatorial candidate in um, Mississippi, and her name escapes me too, it's really irrelevant when you get right down to it, because what really matters are the policies that these people promote. Um, you know, she knows who her base is and she knows what to do to get them motivated. And that's what she's doing. But that uh, my I simply posit that that strategy cannot work much longer. That strategy is going to fail. We're seeing it fail because their base is shrinking. The country is changing. They can't handle it. Getting back to my original text that I sent to you, they are in their death throes. And instead of modifying who they are and what they stand for, they're doubling down on their messages of hate. And by the way, we're you were talking about Cindy Hyde-Smith. She's the Republican uh, senatorial uh, candidate mm -hmm. and senator now in Mississippi that's talking about uh, public hangings. Um, yes, right. So lynchings. We call them lynchings. Right? Yeah, well, she didn't say She'd lynchings. She'd be in the front row. She'd yeah. be in the front Right, she didn't say that, right? You can't say lynchings. Public right. hanging. What's a public hanging? Stop it. These people right. are so silly. They're so they're so blinded by their hate and their fear that they sound to an objective listener. They sound utterly absurd. What about uh, you? You mentioned this is kind of connected. You mentioned uh, the spirit of the slave owning tax cheats, quote, patriot founders mm -hmm. lives on in the radical right and that thing in the White House. Now, are you saying our, 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 <laughs> our founder, our founding uh, fathers were um, you're questioning their patriotism? I'm saying that, you know, I guess we would have to re I guess we would have to define what we mean by patriotism. I'm not going to get into a semantic argument. I'm simply going to state some facts. The facts are these. The people who were most in favor of revolting against the crown were those who had the most to lose or the most to gain. So these were wealthy, white, normally landowners, a lot of a lot of them slave owners. 
and they had they were vested in the economic system of colonial America, which was, as we all know, was based in large part on slave labor. And, and, and also, these people, along with all the colonists, were the beneficiaries of uh, the British crown's um, the British crown's wealth and the British crown's military might, because the French and Indian War slash the Seven Years' War, which was the major conflict that was fought before the Revolutionary War, was the war that was fought by Britain to protect the colonists and protect British territory in the colonies. Um, the British expended a lot of resources, a lot of military might, to win that war and to expand the, the colonies westward and ensure the safety of the colonists. And when it came time to pay all the bills that were racked up because of the huge expense of that war, the colonists said, nope, we'd rather not. And the crown said, well, some, we got to pay for this war. It cost us a lot of money. And, and we fought this war in large part for you to keep you safe. And the colonists balked at that and said, we're not paying that. So the British, that's when the British started to enact taxes. That's when you had things like the Boston Tea Party. That's when you had civil unrest. And slowly this stuff all led up to what we call the, the Revolutionary War. But these white slave owning, these white plantation owners, land owners and slave owners and industrialists, they always had a way of painting themselves as the victims. They really have a skill. They really had a skill then and they continue to have the skill now. They are the most powerful. They are the most wealthy. They are the ones who enslave, who own, who own. Think about that. They own other human beings. And yet somehow their psychology was such that they were able to paint themselves as victims. And they could sell that story to the population. And I think they even believed it themselves. Like I really do believe when Donald Trump sees Donald, Donald Trump uh, a child of privilege talks about the way he's treated, how poorly he's treated, how horrible things are for poor Donald Trump. I really think he believes that. And that mentality is a holdover from our colonial past where rich white men were able to portray themselves as victims. And I think even able to believe their own, their own propaganda. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. So when, when, when they portray themselves, our founding fathers, as victims, who were they portraying themselves as victims to? To themselves, first and foremost. And I really do think they believed it. But that was the myth, that was the story, that was the fiction that you had to sell if you wanted to motivate people to go to war. Because, the masses. Because in, the, 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 the masses. The because farmers. look, in you know, we were told as grade school children, and you and I are the same age, we were taught the Revolutionary War in a certain way, right? The mean, the mean, mean King George III, the, the Boston Massacre, right? Was it really a massacre? Well, we called it the Boston Massacre. We were taught that we were oppressed and we rose up. And we, we dispelled, we fought off the yoke of oppression uh, in favor of liberty and freedom. Really? While we're murdering Indians, while we're enslaving Africans, while we're exploiting workers. But that's the myth that we told ourselves to justify this war and to motivate people to fight. But, but, but going back to colonial America, the vast majority of average working people in colonial America were at best indifferent about a war with Great Britain. Because they were smart enough to say, 
I don't really understand what the benefit will be for me personally if we throw off the crown and we establish our own government. Why would that be better than having the protections of this established government? You know, you had to manufacture reasons for this war and motivate your population. So you called the murder of three people in Boston or four people in Boston a massacre. Um, you you emphasized how horrible it was that the British were the British were living in this country. Well, we were all British at the time. That was our army. It wasn't an occupying army. We were all British at the time. But you can manufacture the mythology. You can manufacture the stories that will start to persuade people that the war is actually in their interest when, in fact, they're really not going to gain anything tangible from the war. But all the rich people who would have to pay more taxes to the crown, they stood to gain a lot because guess what? All those taxes would go away if we fought this war and we won it. So I just say again that this, the Revolutionary War, like most wars, was fought for economic reasons, and those economic reasons benefited the wealthy, the landowner, um, the, the ruling class more than they benefited the worker and the, and the working class. Well put. Sir William here on... Troubadours and Rock On Tours, our resident historian. Often he calls himself a Marxist. Not sure if he's totally a Marxist, but very compelling for sure. Now, you sound a lot like Howard Zinner. You know, it seems like you've been influenced a bit by a people's history. Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly I have. Like, I, I definitely acknowledge where my influences come from. But let me say this. You bring up Howard Zinn. We were taught history in a certain way. We were, you know, when you're very young in this country, from a very young age, the mythology of America is, is, um, is pushed upon us in every way. You know, it's not just in the classroom. If you want to watch a football game, you know, what do you see before a professional football game? You see, mil uh, you see displays of American military might. You see fighter jets flying over the stadium. You see giant American flags being unfurled on the field. Everybody stands for the national anthem. So there's real, there are, there are real insidious ways in which the culture continues to indoctrinate us. It, without thinking much about it, it indoctrinates us into this, this ethos, this mentality of America and American superiority and American exceptionalism. And I simply say that when you start to read people like Howard Zinn, if you're an open-minded person, you, you, you say to yourself, aha, isn't that interesting? I never thought about that perspective before. In fact, you know, in fact, the Mexican-American War was not a war uh, to protect America from the aggressive Mexican army. In fact, the Mexican-American War was a war of aggression so we could steal land from another country vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein stealing Kuwait from the Kuwaitis. We were no different. Our country was no different. The things we did were unjust. And at some point, as a nation, if we want to move forward and progress, we have to come to terms with the injustices that we perpetrated. And the mythology that's peddled in this country does not encourage us to do that. The blasphemy, ladies and gentlemen. The exactly. blasphemy. Sir William... Um, do you think, I think with everything that you're putting into perspective, in a way, and maybe it's the bubble I live in, we are progressing in the United States of America because we talk about this more. There's a bigger and bigger, as you mentioned, group of people who are aware of the, of, of the hypocrisy, of the mythology, 
the the untrue uh, story of of our origins, and thus we will uh, better ourselves. And as you know, the great President Obama once stated, and I say that just to uh, aggravate anybody who, by chance, who's from the right is listening. I doubt it, though. Um, it aggravates me too, but go ahead. Yeah, well, the, the arc, you know, the, the arc, and it, it, he, he was referencing uh, uh, Dr. King, I believe. But how we become uh, more perfect union? Are we? Are we becoming? You know, maybe we are progressing. Maybe we are evolving because we we are making note, you know, of of uh, some of the 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 untruths. I, I, we, I do believe there is progress, and I do believe, like you said, you can point to tangible examples of, of progress, of the progressive agenda being, um, the progressive agenda being initiated on the, on the political level. You'll see policy start to change. And I do believe that, and I, and I like to think that. Um, at the same time, we can't deny that the bigotry and racism and intolerance and xenophobia is still there as manifested in the person who's occupying the White House right now and his almost overt um, encouragement to white nationalists, to neo-Nazis, to, to, um, to uh, uh, KKK members, um, you know, yes, we're making progress and the other side will fight back with everything they've got because they see their whole existence as being threatened. Now, they're wrong. In fact, their existence would actually be made better if we initiated more of the policies of the progressives, especially the economic policies. All those but, folks in Kentucky who take uh, the Affordable Care Act and uh, use it to sustain themselves in terms of, you know, good health, and yet they, they disparage the person who and the party who gave them that, uh, that great bit of um, legislation. Well, not great, but, you know, relatively speaking. Right, because people, vote, people will continue to vote against their own self-interest as long as the fear and the hate and the bigotry and the racism uh, are more powerful forces in their lives than sheer common sense and sober, uh, sober contemplation of policy. So if you're blinded by racism, you will, you will vote against your economic self-interest if you think the person you're voting for hates black people as much as you do. And we've seen it over and over again. You're, you're not helping yourself economically or socially, but you're making yourself feel better because you hate black people and that politician over there who says she would love to go to a lynching, uh, uh, you vote for her because you think, well, she, she, she's, with, you know, she's with me. I'm a white person, so she's with me. You don't realize how bad you're being screwed. Now, let's talk about, you know, the, the, going back to the founding fathers. Do you think they'd be Republicans today? you think they'd be a Donald Trump Republican? I should say a Donald Trump Republican. Because, there, there you know, there was a time where Republicans were reasonable, even though, I, you know, personally I would disagree with them in their philosophy, but they were reasonable and they were very intelligent. But the, the, the people who are running the party now are not those two things. Um, mm -hmm. But do, do you think the founding fathers, a lot of them would have, you know, sided or been in the camp of, of uh, Donald Trump and, and that ilk of Republicans? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, the founding fathers represented a, a wide array of, of political and social opinion, I, I think it's fair to say. Um, having said that, they were all white men. We know that. There was really no other way that business was done. Back in the day, it was white men making all the decisions. It wasn't people of color and it was not women. 
Having said that, you'll see some of the policies that they advocated reflect policies, core policies of the Democratic Party. And you'll see other policies that they advocated uh, seeming very conservative and more in keeping with the with the core policies of the Republican Party. So I think of someone like um, uh, it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a dichotomy, a contradiction. It's kind of a contradiction. You know, these were well-established white men in society. My belief is that if you're well-established in a society, you don't want things to change too much. You are, by your very nature, conservative because you don't want to upset the apple cart. You've got things going your way. Um, I still maintain that these people were willing to do something as radical as rebel against the crown because they could foresee great benefits coming to them if, in fact, they rebelled and won the war. Um, so you're asking if they would be Republicans or Democrats. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to answer that. I see them as being actually for revolutionaries. I see them as being quite conservative, actually, especially the white slave owning plantation owners. I see them as being very conservative. And the reason they were advocating such a radical policy as revolution is because they stood to gain from it economically. Um, so I'm not sure where they would come down nowadays. We can, we can look at the policies of the founding fathers and you and I, because I think you and I think politically in a similar fashion, I think we can extract things that we can say we're liberal and progressive. I'm, you know, a, Ron, I'm a Ron Swanson libertarian. A Ron, right, right, exactly. Just kidding. You can pull out, you know, we like, for example, we like the ideals that are expressed in the Constitution in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I, can, I think I can speak for you when I say we like the idea of Beautiful all stuff. people being created equal. We like the idea of the Bill of Rights so that everybody is guaranteed certain fundamental rights, which up to that point, people had not been guaranteed and they were not uh, enumerated in that way as they were in the Bill of Rights. So we see those things as progressive and, in, in air quotes, liberal. But yet, at the same time, they owned slaves, they excluded women, they excluded people, people of color, they viewed Native Americans as clearly inferior to white people. So again, there are aspects of the Founding Fathers that I think we would all agree with are positive uh, uh, and progressive, but then there were other aspects of their thinking and their mentality that were clearly, I'm not even going to say a product of the times, they were clearly what I would call regressive and conservative. Okay. <laughs> I... I love the analysis here. Every every so often we have the the distinct pleasure of sharing with you the voice of our resident historian here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, Surf William, and we're right around the holiday season now. We're talking on Thanksgiving morning. Uh, all of you guys will be hearing this after that, but this rides right through the holiday season, uh, and we wish you the best, of course. We're just trying to understand who we are as a people, have some fun with it as well, so we don't get so utterly depressed, I suppose. Uh, but I, I, you know, I like to end on a positive note. Where do you, where do you think we're going? You know, we're going into 2019. Yeah, if you have a, you know, a minute or so, where do you think we're going, Sir William, from an historical perspective in this country? And maybe, you know, even to a, to a greater extent, maybe you want to look at the whole, the whole damn blue marble, if you like. Well, I, want, I, I really do want to stay positive because I feel like what's the point in getting all gloomy and negative? Because where does that really, where is that really going to get us? But I have to keep it real on a certain level. So um, are you looking for a message of hope? 
or a message of thanks, I'll tell you what, this is what I will say. I am thankful personally. I am thankful. My, my life is a good life. My wish is that I can expand that out to everyone, that the, the, the joy and the satisfaction and the love and the security that I feel in my day-to-day life, I wish for everyone. And it saddens me that so many of our fellow human beings um, wake up every day with fear and insecurity and um, uncertainty, uh, economic, uh, uh, health-wise, environmentally. Um, so, you know, my, my wish for everyone is that we start to wake up and we start to realize the things that we can do now to make the change in the world that we really do need to make. It's really crucial that we make this change now and we start this process now. Um, as long as we are beholden to the current educational, economic, financial system, we don't, that change won't come. It will not come fast enough. And I really do hope that people wake up with a sense of, of openness and, and um, understanding and compassion and empathy that makes them, that motivates us to change the policies right now that are really hurting us and not helping us. Thank you so much for that insight, Sir William. Have a great holiday season. I hope to see you during it. Uh, either way, all my best to you and yours. Peace to you. I'll be in your neighborhood on Saturday. I don't know what your plans are, but I'll give you a call. That sounds excellent. All right. My Ciao. Brother. Ciao, Fratello. Okay, happy Thanksgiving.
An excerpt from Howard Zinn's masterpiece, A People's History of the United States, 1492 to the Present. This is from Chapter 4, titled, Tyranny is Tyranny. Around 1776, certain important people in the English colonies made a discovery that would prove enormously useful for the next 200 years. They found that by creating a nation, a symbol, a legal unity called the United States, they could take over land, profits, and political power from favorites of the British Empire. In the process, they could hold back a number of potential rebellions and create a consensus of popular support for the rule of a new privileged leadership. When we look at the American Revolution this way, it was a work of genius, and the Founding Fathers deserve the odd tribute they have received over the centuries. They created the most effective system of national control devised in modern times and showed future generations of leaders the advantages of combining paternalism with command. Starting with Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia, by 1760, there had been 18 uprisings aimed at overthrowing colonial governments. There had also been six black rebellions, from South Carolina to New York, and 40 riots of various origins. By this time also, there emerged, according to Jack Green, quote, stable, coherent, effective, and acknowledged local political and social elites. And by the 1760s, this local leadership saw the possibility of directing much of the rebellious energy against England and her local officials. It was not a conscious conspiracy, but an accumulation of tactical responses. After 1763, with England victorious over France in the Seven Years' War, known in America as the French and Indian War, expelling them from North America, ambitious colonial leaders were no longer threatened by the French. They now had only two rivals left, the English and the Indians. The British, wooing the Indians, had declared Indian lands beyond the Appalachians out of bounds to whites, the proclamation of 1763. Perhaps once the British were out of the way, the Indians could be dealt with. Again, no conscious forethought strategy by the colonial elite, but a growing awareness as events developed. With the French defeated, the British government could turn its attention to tightening control over the colonies. It needed revenues to pay for the war and look to the colonies for that. Also, the colonial trade had become more and more important to the British economy and more profitable. It had amounted to about 500,000 pounds in 1700, but by 1770 was worth 2,800,000 pounds. So, the American leadership was less in need of English rule, the English more in need of the colonists' wealth. The elements were there for conflict. The war had brought glory for the generals, death to the privates, wealth for the merchants, unemployment for the poor. There were 25,000 people living in New York when the French and Indian War ended. There had been 7,000 in 1720. A newspaper editor wrote about the growing, quote, number of beggars and wandering poor in the streets of the city. Letters in the papers question the distribution of wealth. Quote, how often 
have our streets been covered with thousands of barrels of flour for trade, while our near neighbors can hardly procure enough to make a dumpling to satisfy hunger. Restless ramblings of an overstuffed man grumble in his head as he tosses and turns in his bed, and the beautiful woman beside him, his wife, helps with his self-indulgent strife as she laughs to herself and mumbles in her deep sleep. He kisses her cheek, and she hugs him so well. Love of mine, someday you will die but I'll be close behind I'll follow you into the dark No blinding light Or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for the hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied and Illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you When your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark In Catholic school As vicious as Roman rule 
I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black And I held my tongue as she told me Son, fear is the heart of love So I never went back And if heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark You and me have seen everything to see From Bangkok to Calgary the soles of your shoes are all worn down The time for sleep is now But it's nothing to cry about Cause we'll hold each other soon In the blackest of rooms And if heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark And I'll follow you into the dark And there you have it, episode 295 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor and resident historian, Surf William. I also like to thank another great historian, Howard Zinn, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt. Stefan Grappelli, The Beastie Boys, David Bowie, Christy Makul, The American Players, Willie Nelson, Toots Hibbert, Death Cab for Cutie, Bradford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard too. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, let's enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>